Super Talk Mississippi media production. What if everyone was turning their head to look at you with a brand new Flowmaster exhaust system from Exhaust Pro in Macomb on Georgia Avenue? Cruise in style with Exhaust Pro of Macomb on Georgia Avenue. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I am your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Hump Day. Yes, we have made it to the center of the week, which also happens to be the first day of the second month of the year, 2023. We are here. The day's getting a little longer, and we're, what, six weeks or so away from daylight saving time. I believe that's right. Yeah, but we won't know how winter is going to end until, is it tomorrow with Groundhog's Day? I think that's right. Can we still do that, or has that been canceled? Is there something? Oh, I'm sure PETA would love nothing more than to cancel <laughs> it, but I'm fairly certain Puxatani Phil is going to make an appearance, no matter what they say. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Surely we got to change the name of it or something, right? Because <laughs> no, then the Bill Murray movie won't make any sense. That's true. <laughs> Very true. I saw where it, it just kind of reminded me of it. I believe it's the San Diego School District out there in California. They uh, they are hoisting the Black Lives Matter flag in celebration of Black History Month, which is the month of oh, February. I was about to say, if the flag sees its shadow, we get six more weeks <laughs> of peaceful protests? Oh, I don't think so. But the San Diego Unified School District is holding a ceremony today to raise the Black Lives Matter flag in honor of Black History Month. The district said that the ceremony will take place today and is open to all students, community members, and staff. In honor of hashtag Black History Month, San Diego Unified students from across the district will raise the Black Lives Matters flag to signify our shared commitment to creating a just, equitable, and empathetic world. Unless you disagree with them. <laughs> That's right. And all that empathy goes out the window. <laughs> and so does the equity. I'm looking at the tweet. I I guess I wasn't aware. The so the Black Lives Matter flag, the symbol, is the clenched fist similar raised skyward similar to the Black Panthers emblem. Is that right? I'll have I to admit keep up with I don't Black either. Black Lives Matter flag well, designs. I was about to say the same, but is this appropriate for school though to have that? Is that 
That seems inequitable to me. Uh, what if you wanted to hoist a, I don't know, a pro-life flag? You think they'd let that happen? Probably not. But I could come up with a number of other symbols and causes. <laughs> oh, gosh. But, you know, this is really changing things a lot, this sort of activity. Well, it's certainly brainwashing the next generation into just being spoon-fed nonsense. Well, speaking of which, I saw a report where Bernie Sanders, what do you say, buddy? I'm Bernie Sanders. Give me all your money. <laughs> I sound like the Yardfuck cartoon. <laughs> he does. He's making the rounds, getting paid. you got to love this. He's getting paid for speeches blasting capitalism. <laughs> He's getting paid for it. You can't make it up. It's so rich. Yeah, there's a pre-sale on tickets at the uh, event in at the Anthem in D.C. The title of the event, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. <laughs> tickets are currently live on Ticketmaster for between $35 and $95. And if you don't see the irony there, <laughs> wake up. Help me. I'm struggling with that. <laughs> oh, it's like our president... Who, by the way, will not submit to, what's the name of the test? The Montreal Cognitive Test or something like that. Remember that when Trump took it and scored a 30 of 30 to the chagrin of Democrats? Because they were looking at invoking, what is it, the 25th Amendment or something to run him out of office. And he scored a 30 of 30. Of course, he immediately started boasting about that. But our president will not submit to it. Why not, Joe? And, you know, something that would perhaps cause you to pause and maybe wonder why he won't, he's, uh, a couple of days ago, he's touting his Inflation Reduction Act Green New Deal tax credits for EVs. And he's touting that while sitting in the driver's seat of an ineligible EV. <laughs> you saw that? He's what, like in a Range Rover. And can you be any more out of touch? The average, the median household income, not the average, the median household income in this country, the country, is about six, 75 grand. In Mississippi, by the way, sadly, we are last at 65. Household income, household, median household income. The nationwide median, 75. He's sitting in an $86,000 vehicle touting the virtues of his EV credits whilst in a vehicle that's not eligible because the rules to qualify are such that virtually nothing can qualify for it and they're they're rejecting you seen this permits to to extract materials in the country to build the batteries which is a requirement that at least half of those materials come from U.S. sources to qualify for the credits. What do they want? How many more conflicts can there be in this dumb policy? It's almost like they're all idiots. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It, uh, it's maddening. Tom Brady says, I'm out. Again. Again. <laughs> I'm going to make, what did he say? I'm going to make this short and sweet. I'm not coming back. Real short. He did this morning. He's out. Not playing the game of football anymore. What is he, like 105 or something? 
<laughs> in the NFL. In football years, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, he says he's out. We've got, uh, who we got? Will East, the program director here at Super Talk on the program at 10.53 to complete the first hour. He'll talk about the Morgan Wallen concert coming up uh, later on this spring in Oxford. And then at 11.05, GOP strategist Henry Barber, fresh uh, back from the RNC meeting, he'll share his thoughtful analysis on the 2023 elections here in Mississippi. Today's the last day, Rhino. If you're planning on running, you better get on down there. (laughs) Five o'clock today, right? 5 p.m. 5 p.m. And then, uh, of course, Henry will also provide some thoughts on the 2024 national scene. Speaking of, oh, and then Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, at 12.05, deadline day yesterday. We'll get an update from him on legislative activities. It's just so much going on, we need more than three hours today. Honestly, because you look at all the activity on the national scene, lots of activity here locally and and statewide with the legislature in session and more bills than you can count. I was up at the Capitol yesterday, (laughs) and there's so many bills, seriously. I asked a couple of members of the legislature their thoughts on certain bills, and, and, and and it's not being critical. They weren't aware of them. There's so dead gum many. I went to an event last night in Madison County, the Madison County Republican Women. Uh, they allow, by the way, males too. They just don't allow Democrats. That was, that was made clear last night. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman was the guest. He spoke five minutes or so, touting accomplishments, and, and that was about it, uh, which was appropriate, of course. And... And so we got a big old race there for lieutenant governor with the incumbent. Governor Hoseman will receive a challenge from State Senator Chris McDaniel. Looks like the field is set there. There's a couple other candidates as well. No disrespect to them. Uh, I don't just don't happen to have their names on the tip of my tongue. I think they're maybe... Well, Shane Quick's one of them. He's run before. And then there's a Tiffany, is that right? You looking at that? I believe uh, the lady who's also running for that office. Of course, we've got Dr. Witcher will be uh, contesting a challenge to Governor Reeves on the Republican side of the gubernatorial, gubernatorial primary. Former Justice Waller says he's not a candidate. He announced that. And we got some news on the citizen ballot measure, and when we come back, the field for president in 2024 is shaping up as well. We got some uh, info to pass on there, and a whole lot more here on Middays. We're in the Element Well Studios, and coming right back. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. 
Super Talk Mississippi. everyone to middays i gotta tell on myself here rhino my wife and i used to really go to town on that tune back in the disco era in the discos when the bass would like shake your head <laughs> the decibels through the, the woofers <laughs> you can tell there's some pretty serious bass in that tune amy stewart the artist <laughs> that was fun Yes, four-inch stacks, like 10-inch bell-bottoms. I wore them. We all did. It was 1978. It was fun. Sorry. <laughs> yes. so I, I think I might have been giving out incorrect information. Okay. Because now that I'm reading the top part of this candidate qualifying list put out by the Secretary of State's office, it has, and I quote, Okay. Until February 1st at 6 p.m. Ah, 6, not 5. Okay. Whole extra hour. Whole hour. <laughs> you can get off work, make it by there, and still drop off your paperwork. Right. So what I'm seeing, candidates for governor, of course, the present governor, Tate Reeves, John Witcher, also a Republican, Gregory Walsh, a Democrat, Brandon Presley, of course, a Democrat, and Gwendolyn Gray, an independent. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, a candidate for lieutenant governor to be reelected to that office. He'll face a challenge from Republicans uh, Shane Quick and Tiffany Longino, and of course, most recently, announcing this past Monday, just two days ago, State Senator Chris McDaniel. So it looks like that field. Yeah, I'm looking at this report. It just came up on the, about Bernie Sanders. $95 to attend his anti-capitalist tour. And it's okay to be angry about capitalism, the title. The sad thing is, Rhino, idiots will go to this thing, and they will lap it up. And we, where are the pro-capitalist people? Where are they? Why aren't they speaking? They're counting the money for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Here you go, Bernie. Here's your cut. <laughs> Thanks for bringing all the idiots to town. <laughs> it, it is disturbing, however, that the leftist, the Bernie Sanders of our era, seem to dominate the speaking scene in the higher ed domain, etc., where it's incredibly important not only to hear multiple points of view, but to tout the virtues of what the hell got us here. What enabled them to even be a student at whatever 
$75,000 a year university they happen to be attending. Unbelievable. All right, so we got the field. I don't see any challengers on either the Republican or Democrat side to Attorney General Lynn Fitch. Of course, Republican Michael Watson, the present Secretary of State, I don't see any Republican challengers to Secretary Watson. However, Shawaski Young is running for that office as a Democrat. He, of course, was on the program this past week. Doesn't appear that David McRae, just going down the list, the Republican state treasurer has any challengers on either the Republican or Democrat side at this point. Andy Gibson will face a challenge from Brad, uh, excuse, pardon me, Robert Bradford, a Democrat for Ag Commissioner. State Auditor Shad White appears to be unopposed by either Republican or Democrat. And Mike Cheney, the Insurance Commissioner, he doesn't appear to have any competition as well for that office from either a Democrat or Republican. So that's where we stand today. We wait with bated breath for 6 o'clock, right, today. 6 o'clock. Buckle up, folks. It's going to be a wild ride. All right, back to the national scene because some news has broken in the last 24 hours. Nikki Haley to announce her run for president. I believe that will occur at February the 15th in Charleston, South Carolina, her home state, a state where she was one time the governor. Also, Tim Scott, we teased that yesterday. He seems to be gearing up for a presidential run. Ron DeSantis. Although, Ron DeSantis, I think a lot of folks would place him at the top, up there with Donald Trump. He hasn't even formed, it's being reported, an exploratory committee yet. He Still made, a long ways to go. It, there yeah. is. But he hasn't has it really done anything specifically related to uh, campaigning for, for president. Which lines up with his previous statements that he's focused on being the governor of Florida. I like it. That may work, I would say, positively for him as a future candidate. This is also a big week from an economic perspective. We got earnings reports out, Meta. That would be the parent of Facebook. They're going to announce later today, and then tomorrow is a big old day. Apple, Google also will announce. And uh, let's see, there's a couple of other ones there. Oh, yeah, Amazon. Amazon tomorrow, Starbucks, Merck, Ford, etc. The big one yesterday, ExxonMobil announced their fourth quarter record profits for the giant energy company at $55 billion for the year. And as you can imagine, the Democrats wasted no time in pouncing on that. They made too much money. It's outrageous how much money they made. That's what they said. Because, you know, in America, anyone can make it, right? No, that's the great thing about our system. You just can't make too much. Oh, once you get too much, we got to take it away from you. That's how we... That's how we roll here in the USSA. <laughs> it's what it's coming 
down to. Yeah, they're livid because Exxon made so much money. Why don't they say anything about Apple, who nearly doubles their net profit, which I think is fantastic. I've talked about that before. Apple, most people don't know. A hundred billion dollars of net profit on sales of under 400 billion. 100 billion. Microsoft. By the way, Apple, Microsoft, the only two companies that have made more in a single year than Exxon. Microsoft last year, 72 billion. Fantastic. Great. Who's willing to part with their Microsoft and their Apple so they make less money? Not too many. In fact, sales are up. And Exxon, what's driving that? This is what's so foolish about this. So duplicitous. It's Joe Biden's stupid policies. That's what drove up the price of oil. It not only made the company who he's now trashing more profitable, they're talking about a stock buyback. And you know the Democrats hate stock buybacks. Chuck Schumer just wants to outlaw them. And remember, the Inflation Reduction Act instituted a 1% tax on stock buybacks for companies who produce more than a billion. By the way, that's like the number you could count on one hand that that would affect. And it's the same thing with them getting all bent out of shape about the 50 corporations who pay no income taxes, which, by the way, those 50 corporations, their book income, not their taxable income, their book income, that's what they want to tax. It's $40 billion bucks, And of those, only a dozen or so would be ensnared by this rule, it would raise, are you ready for this, about an hour and a half's worth of income. Three and a half, four billion dollars, maybe, in a budget of six trillion. Consider that. Senator Shelby of Alabama got 650 million of goofy earmarks. Almost a, a third. 20% of what this would raise. But they present this to the American people as if we're going to go after those corporations that made all that money and tax them, and that's going to solve our problem. They, they can't do math. They're mathematically challenged. Either they can't or they simply don't want to. They want to keep you in the dark. But I tell you what, folks, we're shining a light on it here i got to tell you about an article that uh, I just wrote, and I hope you'll go read. I think you'll enjoy it. It's published at supertalk.fm. When we come back, I'll share the details of that. We're in the Element Well Studios, and we shall return. Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. Love strange, surreal and dark. 
That's a good video, by the way. Simple Minds. You've seen that before, ain't you? Oh, yeah. Kind of out in the middle of nowhere, like on a hill. And then famously from The Breakfast Club. That's right. Sure was. Pumping the fist yeah, with the earring. That's right. Good, uh, yeah, good recall there. We are back. So, uh, penned an article that uh, I hope folks will go read. I know it's a little long, but it's, there's a lot to be said about this, and that is the debt ceiling. And it's a combination of primer, so to speak, uh, just about deficits, debts, debt, I should say, how we got here, where we're going, and what the likely outcome is regarding the nation's financial situation. The President and Speaker McCarthy are scheduled to meet today. You would have to mark that as a bit of an improvement over last week when the White House was saying, we're not even going to talk to you. There are no negotiations. That's off the table. Well, they're still maintaining the no-negotiation posture, but they, don't, they are going to meet at the White House today. Now, what they're going to discuss is anybody's guess at this point. But in the article, I think we point out some facts about spending, about our debt, that are probably not widely known and sadly not understood by most of the people up there in Washington making the laws. And the one side of me says, well, it's your job. You, you should have all this committed to memory. On the other side, it's like, we made this so dang complicated, so convoluted, so gigantic, so expansive, the mortal human really can't keep up with it. That's the sad thing. Look no further than two days for a 4,100-page bill cobbled together by an army of staffers, you know that, sprawled throughout the Capitol. 4,100 pages. That's just for the discretionary part of spending, the $1.7 trillion of the six. You'd have to add thousands of pages to account for the mandatory component of spending, which is still going at a runaway pace. And the, and the point here is that when you look at, okay, what would we have to do to balance the budget? There's a lot of people out there, I believe, tuned in right now that said the federal government should live within its means. It should balance the budget. There's a convention of states effort a lot of folks are aware of. And if you know anything about the rules with respect to convention of states, and I'm trying to recall this from memory, Rhino, but you, you can't hold the convention without having a specific purpose. I mean, it's got to be, you've got to have a published agenda, a well-defined agenda, and there's a limit on I think how differing items can be that would be placed on the agenda for 
discussion and vote at the convention. So you ch- can't say, let's just have a convention and let's just talk about everything. You, that's really not permitted under our Constitution. Scott, there's got to be an express purpose, policy purpose. And right now there, there are two major items is, is, uh, that have been advocated for by those that have been working diligently to hold a convention of states. That's balancing the budget and term limits. Those two. So the way it works is the states have to join the convention and the states have different mechanisms to do that. Mostly it requires a resolution uh, that is passed by state legislatures and I believe signed by a governor. Mississippi is signed on for the balanced budget item but not the term limits item. And when you look at balancing the budget, back to that, what would be required to do that? It's not quite as simple as meets the eye, and here's why. you got Democrats and Republicans who have said, we will not touch Social Security, we will not touch Medicare. Okay, well, you just eliminated uh, about a third <laughs> of the spending in that. Fair enough. Then you get to Medicaid, and Medicaid uh, clocks in at about 16-17%. Then you got this array of other programs that have been implemented that are just redistributionist in nature, such as all the various tax credits and housing credits, and you dream it. Uh, all that is in the bucket of mandatory spending because it's been enacted into law. It does not require annual appropriation. And then you got debt interest. Debt interest, which this year is on track to be $600 billion, 10% of our budget. And within five years, it'll be over a trillion. A trillion. It'll be bigger than Social Security. Within two years, it'll be bigger than defense. It may take four but that's where we're headed. That's the point, depending on interest rates, of course. So that's the 70% that is off limits. As far as Democrats are concerned, and Republicans aren't likely to sign up for severe cuts to Medicaid. Okay, so that which is part of mandatory. They can't do anything about the, the interest on the debt, because if they did, we default, and if we defaulted, the entire global economy crashes. On the debt now. So let's look at discretionary spending. Well, Republicans largely would say you can't touch defense. Well, that's half of discretionary spending. So if you're keeping up, 70% is mandatory, 50% of discretionary is defense. So now we're uh, approaching 85%. Off limits. Now you got so-called non-defense domestic spending, which is the, the other half of discretionary, if you're keeping up. And that's the, all the funding for the, the agency complex, the Department of Health and Human Services, the DOJ, the IRS, the EPA, Department of Ed, just go down the list, Department of Justice, and all that. That's half of discretionary, the other 15%. And Democrats will dig in and say, you can't touch that. So why do we go? Where's there any common ground? 
If you said discretionary is the only thing even on the table, maybe Republicans would give on defense and Democrats would give on non-defense, part of discretionary. Well, you'd have to cut 85% of that to balance the budget. That's why it's just anybody that says, send me to Washington, I'm balancing the budget. No, you're not. No, you're not. You might have a chance, might have a chance of reducing the deficit. So what are the plans from the respective parties? Well, nothing earth-shaking there that would shock you. Democrats say, we've got to raise taxes. We can't cut a dime of spending. And Republicans would say, we need spending reform. But here's the problem. They won't tell you what. So they're coming out. And a lot of people say, well, if we just cut, cut all the waste and fraud abuse out of it, we'd balance our budget. I wish that were the case. And I'm all for that. And that needs to be... We need to have been doing that all along. Why are we waiting till now? Yeah, it's we... kind of hard to believe that that's not at least the compromise. I agree. If neither side will agree to cuts or increasing taxes, well, all right, how about we just quit wasting? You know why they won't, in my view? Because you know where the biggest dollars to be had there? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Nobody wants to do that. Oh, that means that so-and-so over here won't get their check, even though they don't qualify for it. They're no longer eligible. And make no mistake, the CBO, which I think is missing it, says there's $80 billion of waste, fraud, and abuse just in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Of course, $80 billion ain't squat when your deficit's $1.4 trillion. But at a minimum, we ought to be able to agree, as Rhino said, to root that out. There should be a task force appointed immediately with people who don't have an interest in where government spends its money to dig into all these details and root out the waste. And there are a lot of people that benefit from it. And the government looks the other way. We're now getting reports of the massive amount of waste and all this stupid COVID relief, including employees of the federal government that scammed unemployment benefits while they were working for the federal government. It's incredible. Middays is coming right back. Properly set all controls before recording. All systems go. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. Midday. Sorry, it was down the hall. The boss got me in the hall there. <laughs> it's Willie, Super Talks program director. What you got for us, Will? Morgan Wallen. Morgan Wallen, April 23rd, Sunday, April 23rd. He's going to be playing actually Saturday and Sunday. It's an incredible. If you're not familiar with Morgan Wallen, by the way, he is the hottest act in country music right now. He's about to release a new album. He just announced that, I believe, yesterday or the day before. Uh, a 36-song album, which in the old days we called that a double album, right? That might be even a triple album these days. 36 songs. He was the number one artist last year. He's probably going to be the number one artist this year. Tickets are incredibly difficult to get. Now, you can buy some some seats. They're very expensive, but Super Talk Mississippi is going to give you an opportunity to win what we call sweet seats. And we mean S-W-E-E-T and S-U-I-T-E, meaning that these seats are in the <laughs> skybox, in the suite. So they are literally sweet seats. And the way that you can win is we have a list of about 22 locations, and we're adding some more all across the state. And all you have to do is go to these locations, enter your name, and address, drop it in the box, and we're going to have a big drawing on April 12th to figure out who's going to win these. We're going to give away four, there's going to be four winners. Each winner will get a pair of tickets. Again, this will be for the Sunday, April 23rd show. And there's, like I said, locations all across the state Columbus, Brookhaven, Columbia, Hazelhurst, Jackson, Meridian, uh, Corinth, Macomb, Gulfport, Biloxi, uh, Oxford, Corinth, Tupelo. A lot of locations. Weather's Auto Supply. If you if you're from North Mississippi, if you're from Tupelo, you know Weather's Auto Supply. Oxford, Corinth, Tupelo. You can sign up at those locations. Uh, Seals Tire and Auto in Gulfport. Oh, be quick on Veterans in Macomb. There's a lot of places. Go to Morgan. Go to SuperTalk.fm/slash Morgan Wallen to find the full list, and you are going to have the opportunity to win sweet seats. I looked at the prices for sweet seat tickets. If you want to go and just buy some yourself. Yeah. A minimum $350 each before fees. Because hmm. you have to pay fees these days, obviously. Yeah. A minimum. I saw some as as high as $900. Jeez. That's getting on up there. So just thinking about uh, where the stage will be set up. So I'm assuming it's going to be in the north end zone? I believe area? beneath the Jumbotron. Okay. Yeah, in the north end zone yeah. there. So it would be facing the south. Suites. Yes. And then you got the suites on the east and west as well. Exactly. And it'll be in the, the Super Talk suite there. And the great thing about if you've ever, I've been ruined by going to, and you know this better than anybody, <laughs> you don't have to deal with concession stands. Right. You want to go to the bathroom? Hey, it's right there. You right. don't have to fight the crowd. You don't have to wait in line. You don't have to wait for him to play something off the new album. Yep. You know, when most people go to the bathroom, it's right there for you. Yeah, uh, I admit that uh, I've had a suite that's three down from the Super Talk suite, of course, in uh, Vaught Hemingway since the suites were built in 2003. Yeah, it does spoil you. It spoils I you. I will agree with yeah. that. So, so uh, be looking for this. We're going to be promoting this for several weeks. Like I said, the, the drawing is on April 12th. So starting today into April 12th, you can go to all these locations. Again, the full lo- list of locations is at supertalk.fm slash Morgan Wallen. And, of course, you can listen to Supertalk Mississippi, and you'll hear these locations in your local on your local uh, station about where you can find them in town. Like I said, we've got a lot of locations, 22. We're adding some more each and every day. We added three or four yesterday, so 
there's going to be more locations near you. Very hot ticket Morgan Wallen is right now. Yeah. All right, so where all can you get them? Because we've had a couple of people said they tried to buy tickets and they couldn't, just general, I guess, tickets, and they were they asked about it and folks seem to be not in the know. Sellers. Where so, can you get them? So, uh, like I said, the full list is at supertalk.fm okay. slash Morgan Wallen, but Waverly uh, Boutique in Columbus, Cobalt's Boutique in Columbus, Little Caesars Pizza in Brookhaven, Old Coke Plant in Brookhaven, Be Quick Super Jack in Brookhaven. There's okay. 22, I believe, locations on there. Weathers Auto Supply, I mentioned them, Oxford, Corinth, and Tupelo, Black Sheep Boutique in Tupelo. Okay. Um, Exhaust Pro in Macomb. I'm just reading off some of these. Ramey's Market in Monticello, uh, the Atrium Mini Mall in Meridian, Got Gear in Jackson, Watts Brothers in Columbia, lots of places. Got you. Okay, so uh, it's going to be a big concert. Probably be sold out, don't you think? It is, and if you want a hotel room or Airbnb, <laughs> you might have to break out the old sleeping bag and just uh, sleep in the back of your truck because <laughs> it's hard to get uh, hotels uh, or Airbnb right now on right. that weekend. Appreciate it. Well, we've yes, got sir. Henry Barber coming up next. Stay with us. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays, Super Talk Mississippi in the Element Well Studios on this hump day. Joining us now, GOP strategist Henry Barber. Good to see you again, Henry. Gerard, hey, man. Good to be here. Thank you. Yes, sir. So you just recently attended the RNC uh, meeting. Uh, what happened there? Well, we we had our election for officers. Uh, you know, ch- the chair race was the big race. Right. Uh, Ronna McDaniel was running for really an unprecedented four terms. She's been chair for the last six years. She first came in with Donald Trump, and then after Trump lost in twenty, uh, she stayed. She got reelected, um, actually unopposed, and uh, but this time she had real strong competition. Hermie Dillon. As uh, a national committee woman from California, she is a super talented and bright attorney who is tough, and uh, and she ran a strong race. And then Mike Lindell, Mister My Pillow, <laughs> uh, jumped in the race, um, and I didn't know what to think about him. But it's interesting, Gerard. We all got out there. We were out in California for this meeting. And we all got a text on our phone saying, hey, Mike Lindell's holding a, a reception. And we're all like, oh, we want to go. <laughs> and uh, and it was just up in his um, hotel suite. And uh, we went up there, and and I, you know, I didn't take him very seriously as a candidate for RNC chair because, you know, it's just he's in the pillow business. <laughs> um, but he couldn't have been nicer and um i saw him a couple of days later he remembered my name wanted to chat and um I, you know i i think he's a guy that wants to you know learn more yeah um anyway he got four votes uh rana got 111 and harmeet got 51 so rana won pretty handily but it 
it could have been a lot closer. I think if Harmeet had run a little bit different campaign, uh, there are there were a lot of people in the committee that that were interested in change. Uh, but they weren't quite sure that she was the right person for the change, and and some of her team around her made people nervous, and um, you know, so a lot of lot of factors. But it was interesting. Um, President Trump endorsed two candidates in in lesser positions, the co-chair race and the and the treasurer race. And interesting, his both his candidates lost. Right, and people have thought that the RNC is really, you know, now controlled by Trump, hmm. but I think that's a sign that that's not necessarily the case. And I, I you know, I, I think one thing the RNC has to be in this race that the DNC wasn't in '16 is neutral. Let the voters decide. Let the let the candidates go out there and and do their thing and and make their pitch and. And um, and then let the voters sure. decide. Let's you know. Let's not you know put our hands on the scale. Um, debates, primary debates, is, was a big discussion, Gerard. Hmm. And uh, those will start in August or September. But um, one of the things that that Arana McDaniel deserves credit for is is saying, look, Republican nominee will not be there for this you know, presidential debate commission that had just gotten so left-leaning yeah. that it was absurd. And so I, I give Ron and RNC a lot of credit for getting our candidate out of that. And I expect when we have the general election for president in 24, there will be debates, just like any campaign. You sure. don't have to have a debate commission to put a, yeah. a debate together. You just got to have two campaigns that, you know, want to get out there and, and duke it out. Yeah, agree to a debate. So uh, you alluded to it, Henry. Harmy Dillon is in quite sharp, thinks fast on her feet. Yeah. And uh, is sort of a non-emotional person that is very clear thinking and cuts to the chase. My question for you is, and you, you're probably closer to this than anybody else in the state, Henry, how big a factor is the RNC chair, because the name of the game is winning races. How big a factor is the RNC chair in winning races for Republicans? So uh, the Republican National Committee has a big role in in out there in campaign world, and uh, and with state parties particularly. But but as the party, what, you know what we do is. We put the infrastructure together, the long-term uh, voter registration, uh, absentee ballots, early voting in states, uh, uh, yeah. not, not Mississippi. Yeah. Um, but, you know, huge voter file and all the data. Um, and so it's doing the sort of blocking and tackling the infrastructure that you have to have for, for, uh, for campaigns to win. But candidates, obviously, in campaigns, you know, they're they're focused on the message. The RNC doesn't buy political advertising. Uh, very rarely do they. Um, it's the candidates, you know, who are telling you what the message is and why you should, you know, why you should vote for them. Um, but the RNC has a has an important role. But if you look back at 2022 and you and you scratch your head and kind of wonder why did we lose, and in fact, Rana has asked me and Harmeet Dillon and two other members of the RNC hmm. to look into what happened in 22. Were we as good as we thought? Or, or did where, where were the problems? Because mm-hmm. we thought we were going to probably win some more races. How big was the Dobbs decision? 
and it was significant. It it changed voter intensity in a matter of days. Yeah. Um, so we're going to look at all that, um, but. There are a lot of other groups since uh, Citizens United and McCain Fine Gold Campaign Financial Force. RNC can't take soft money, um, okay. and so the RNC is a little less relevant than it was 15, 20 years ago hmm. because now you have all these super PACs, the Senate Leadership Fund, the House Leadership Fund, you know that bring in all this money that McCarthy drives one. Um, Mitch McConnell drives the other, and there are a lot of other groups out there. So the RNC is not as big a player as it was when my uncle Haley was RNC chair, um, but it's still a significant player, and it it's in charge of the presidential primary process. So it you know we're in charge of the debates, we're in charge of course of the convention. So it plays a big role, but you know as I look at twenty two. Uh, and you and I have talked about this right after the election. You know, I think you know one of the biggest factors was that the candidates who were focused on the future, who were focused on public policy, did much much better than the candidates who were stuck in the past. And you know, people kind of want to move on from past elections, and they they want somebody with an aspirational message. How are you going to make my life better? Because that's really all I care about. Am I going to be safer? Are we going to have better schools? Are we going to have some jobs? Totally agree. Completely agree with you. And I, and I think that trend is going to continue, Henry. That's that's Amen. doesn't just apply to 22. That, I want to know what you're going to do, not just that you're not somebody else or you want to go revisit the past and <laughs> dig that up and analyze that. Uh, it's just not really moving the needle for anybody. That's Completely right. Agree. That's right, yeah. and and I think in we're going to put this uh, significant report together. Republican National Committee is Harm Eight and Nine, a couple others, and and you know the, those are things that we're going to talk about. We're going to look at twenty two. It's not just Henry Barber's opinion, but let's let's look at the data. Let's look at the results, and and make serious recommend, recommendations for 24 that that should be applied by the RNC that should be applied by RGA and RSLC and and state parties and very importantly candidates yeah, and candidates. campaigns and consultants sure. you know one of the things that happened to us in in the 22 cycle that we just didn't see coming was the Dobbs decision and all of a sudden you know Voter intensity on the Democrat side got much, much better. They caught up with us, you know, in a, about a week's time. And, but a lot of our political consultants, media consultants to candidates were advising our candidates not to talk about the Dobbs decision. Hmm. And so it allowed Democrats, particularly less a factor in, say, in Mississippi, yeah. but in a lot of other states, and, and, and particularly states with you know bigger populations, suburbia and all that, um, our candidates didn't talk about it. So Democrats were able to portray our candidates as the ones that are extreme. And I would argue if we should have been explaining how the Democrats are extreme and how so many Democrat candidates think you ought to be able to abort right up to the point of birth. And some of them even believe that if the if the abortion's botched, 
Well, you still can kill the baby. Just had a and, bill in the House, as you know, yeah, that, that it, uh, couldn't get any Democrat support on that. Yeah. And, uh, so, I agree. so with some missed opportunities in 22, we need to apply those in 24. All right. We got Henry Barber. When we come back, uh, we'll break down the 23 elections here in Mississippi. And then, of course, the national political scene is just around the corner in 24. Appreciate it. Henry Barber, our guest here in the Element Well Studios, and we're coming right back. That keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios, our guest is GOP strategist Henry Barber. All right, so Henry, we've got some uh, big races coming up here in Mississippi. The field is set, with the exception of anyone who would care to qualify between now and 6 p.m. this evening. We'll hit the deadline. It's been moved up, as you well know, which makes it a little more interesting uh, because that occurs just a month into the legislative session. I'm not sure how much that influenced or doesn't influence legislation, but it's certainly something that could be speculated as it is different than in prior cycles. So we've got uh, first, at the top of the ticket, we've got the governor's uh, race. Incumbent sitting Governor Tate Reeves will face a, a challenge on the Republican side from John Witcher, a physician in Yazoo City, then, of course, I guess the big news this week, Brandon Presley on the Democrat side, a, uh, a fairly well-known populist, I think, on the, on the Democrat, uh, in the Democrat Party, the Public Service Commissioner in the Northern District. He wasted no time in his rebuttal to the State of the State address uh, that Governor Reeves delivered. He wasted no time in offering his opinion there, shaping up to be... Uh, quite the election season. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about it. And you, you know, you talk about this all happening with the legislature in town. You, you think they're paying any attention over there? <laughs> no question. I can uh, guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, no question about it that that they are. And uh, you know, look, the the um, the governor's race is going to be entertaining. Um, and Brandon Presley. Will be a serious opponent to yep. Tate Reeves, but I, I will say this: um, Governor Reeves has been underestimated, I think, throughout his political career. I can remember in 2003, I was running Haley's race against Musgrove. That was like 100 years ago, <laughs> and um, and there was this guy Tate Reeves running for treasurer, and I'm like, I, 
I have no clue who he is. And um, and I talked to him on the phone, and we saw him out on the road. And, and um, you know, Tate, what Tate is, he is this meticulous worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than Haley, I mean, he is one of the very, very few uh, Republican candidates who's really serious about the mechanical side of campaigns, including fundraising. And nobody likes to do fundraising. Nobody likes to pick up the phone. But I tell you what, Tate has just been this persistent fundraiser. And so I think he's sitting there with about $8 million. And, you know, Brandon Presley is, you know, got, a, uh, got an uphill battle on that side. Now, might Democrats from out of state think, hey, you know what, this this is kind of a cheap opportunity, you know, from from their perspective to come in and, and maybe try to pick off uh, a Republican governor. We got this, you know, this Brandon Presley, Elvis's cousin of some sort, uh, you know, running. And, and that's a risk uh, that, you know, that Tate faces that outside money could come in. Um, but I, I, you know, I think Tate will win. I, I think... It, it, this will come down to: Do you want a conservative governor, or do you want something that Brandon Presley would say he's conservative? But you know, most of us, you start getting to talking about the issues like, that ain't a conservative. Um, and I and I think one of the issues that has really shown the contrast in what do you get from your government is COVID. And I think if you look at Florida, I think if you look at Mississippi, uh, Georgia, uh, where you had Republican governors, you had more freedom. The government didn't try to tell you everything that you got to do. And I think Tate was very serious about we don't know what this COVID thing is. We got to figure it out. And and, and he took it very seriously. And I don't Early think on, for sure, questioned. nobody knew. Absolutely, and I think that's the right thing to do. But as soon as he figured out, okay, you know, we need to make sure that businesses are running, people can go and earn a paycheck so they can pay their bills, schools stay open so we don't have not just semesters, but even years go by where kids aren't in their school. I mean, there, there are towns all over America where they had Democrat mayors, states where you had Democrat uh, governors. And could you even go to church? Heaven forbid that we got the government telling us whether we can or can't go to church. But you could buy booze and weed while yeah. you couldn't go to church. Yeah, well, of course, some states. of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> well, those are those are priorities. Um, and uh, but I, I think that issue exposed Democrats in in. in in a way that Americans haven't forgotten. And I think it was particularly evident in the Virginia governor's race in 2021. Yeah. But I think it also was in 22. And it, so I, th- I think Brandon Presley, had he been governor during COVID, would have been much more like New York Governor Mario Cuomo than Tate Reeves or Ron DeSantis. And that has real implications on people's life. Don't you feel like, and I agree with you, don't you feel like that even though someone like Brandon Presley, 
could sort of portray himself as a, as a moderate and and maybe even to some extent uh, conservative, but he's still influenced and often um, beholden to the to the National Party and their philosophy. Well, I'm glad that Brandon is pro-life, and I'm glad that. You know, he and Tate can agree at least that, on that. Yeah, that they can agree on that. That's that's an important issue. And so, look, I, I give him credit on that. Yeah. But the problem is, like most Democrats, he thinks the answer to your problems is taking somebody's money, spending it on government programs that they decide how your life should be impacted or run. And look. The, the government has a role. It has an important role to be a safety net. Um, but, you know, I think, um, you know, Brandon is a big government liberal, and, uh, you know, I don't think he's a conservative. I'm glad we can agree on an issue like pro-life. That's important. I'm not mad at Brandon Presley. I, I'm sure he's, an, he's a nice guy. I've met him a few times, and he's always nice as he can be, and that's great. But, you know, that's not enough. Um, you know, it, how are you going to run the state? And again, I just think COVID was one of those uh, big issues that really exposed it. Your elections really do have consequences. They have public policy consequences. So I, that's going to be a fascinating race. Um, uh, you know, educate. You know, the big issues in state races typically, no surprise, jobs, education. Healthcare, yep. and I think those are those are the big things that we'll be talking about. And I think Republicans, and I think this uh, give credit to Phil Bryant, give credit to Tate Reeves and and Delbert and Philip Gunn and legislators. Um, we've we've really focused in on education issues and trying to put the public schools in the strongest position possible and and also trying to innovate on with with giving people choices and uh, you know for other opportunities and uh these are important things and i and i think you know when haley was running in 03 you know we viewed boy education's you know it's a tougher issue for us and we talked about you know schools got to be you know we got we got to have reform they got to be responsible um but i think republicans have come a long ways in understanding how fundamentally important you know public schools are. If you don't have good public schools, you know your town is so limited, and and we got lots of towns in the Delta that you know struggling with that. Yeah. All right. So I, I I agree with you on that, and I haven't thought the way you have, and it's a great point you make, Henry, that COVID really did sort of show the true colors politically, and the the difference in the way the states reacted to it and governed. It, it, it couldn't be a sharper contrast. You make a great point. You look at Cuomo and Newsom in the deep blue states and their overreaction versus DeSantis. I can remember Rhino and I talked about it on the show when, when DeSantis opened the beaches after we had learned then that, you know, the chance of transmitting this outside, especially in the sun, is like nil. And the Democrats were were uh, clamoring that this was going to be a super spreader event and people were going to die because they were going to the beaches. Uh, it's a great point, though. It ex- it exposed the the flanks of both sides and their philosophy. And I think one is about we got to give people some latitude, and the other is about we got to lock everybody up. And then that pervades the rest of their philosophy about government. And that's true here. Yeah, Democrats got exposed. With COVID no doubt. And, no doubt. And um, 
anyway, it, it, you know, it, it, it'll be fascinating. And I don't know how much Tate and Brandon will talk about it, but if I was Tate Reeves, uh, I, I agree. would be sure to make, help make that contrast. Good point. Can you stay around? Yeah, sure. Okay. We, yeah. Uh, we can come back and hopefully discuss the next race on the ticket, which will be lieutenant governor. That's shaping up to be another fascinating one, to use your words there. Henry Barber is our guest in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. With Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, it's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We're talking to Henry Barber, a GOP strategist, about the upcoming political races. It's a big year in Mississippi, 2023, the odd year every four. We go to the polls to vote on our statewide elected officials, all of our members of the legislature, of course. We were just discussing in the last segment, Henry, the, the governor's race. Let's go down the, the ballot now and talk about the lieutenant governor's race. This one is setting up to be maybe one of the most intriguing of all. Of course, uh, incumbent Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman will seek his second term. And as of Monday, uh, Chris McDaniel, State Senator Chris McDaniel, who is no stranger to statewide races, as you well know, he it looks like he's running. Not looks like he is. He's running for <laughs> lieutenant governor. That's in the books. He had a big announcement at GOP headquarters this past Monday. Your thoughts? It's going to be a barn burner. Um, I, it, it, you know, for for people who like watching political campaigns, this is going to be uh, entertaining. Now, if you're Delbert or Chris, do you think you know that's entertaining maybe not but but i think for for people who you know like to watch these things um you know you've got the incumbent lieutenant governor who's got you know great track record and in office and as secretary of state helped bring voter id uh so i think delbert's got a, a great track record he's got i think about four million dollars cash on hand which is um, it's a big chunk of change. It wasn't that long ago that four million dollars was the record spent in in a state race, and I say it wasn't that long ago. Actually, I guess it was. It was, you know, Haley spent thirteen and a half million in '03, but before that, Fordyce had set the record, and it was about four four and a half million. Yeah, you know, back in the '90s, and I'm aging myself, but but this is going to be a a really uh, fascinating race. Um, uh, you know, Chris McDaniel is arguably one of the most talented political performers in the state in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, I, you know, I've watched a lot of this. 
And uh, and I will say, you know, when Cochran was going to – or speculation whether he would run again or not, you know, back in 2014, and and Chris McDaniel was thinking about running and, and, and kind of making noise, I completely underestimated the guy. Um, and I didn't really know him. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, my view was is that, well, Thad Cochran is the gold standard for – you know, politicians in Mississippi, he's a statesman, you know, people get it, he's done great things for the state, and um, this just won't be a race, you know, maybe it's 60-40 or, you know, something or whatever, and and um, boy, was I wrong. I mean, you know, what a race that was uh, in so many ways, um, but, but my point is, is that um, this is going to be a tough race, and I think both camps know it. Um, I think both candidates have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, I, you know, Delbert is more the workhorse. He loves public policy. He loves the, you know, being over there at the Capitol and, and working on bills and being in the details. And, and along with Governor Reeves and the Speaker, you know, he can take credit for, you know, helping bring the largest tax cut in the state's history. Uh, and I mentioned before, uh, you know, voter ID, which, you know, 80-some percent of the people think is a great idea, and why wouldn't you? Um, and Chris McDaniel's more of a show pony. Um, he, he, he is a tremendous performer, but, uh, you know, I've never seen him, you know, that active on bills. He got animated when it was time to change the flag, and that will help him with some people and hurt him with some others. Yeah. Um, but... Gerard, this is going to be a race. No doubt. Yeah. Do you think this will be somewhat of a repeat of the uh, the 14 Senate race, uh, Senator Cochran? Do you, will this be a repeat? Will, where, are we likely to see, you think, Henry, a, a very closely contested primary? We move to a runoff. What do you think? Um, Hard to tell at this point, I know, but I, I, well, I expect it. It will be a very competitive race. Okay, um, I, you know, Delbert clearly the favorite, um, and and Chris McDaniel, you know, is the challenger. But um, I just look, it's just it's it's gonna be a tight race, and uh, it'll be fascinating. You know, Chris McDaniel, uh, you know, won't have the the money. But Chris McDaniel can do more with less than anybody else in the state politically because he has a tremendous following on social media and a lot of his people, you know, they're fired up. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they'll, they'll make a lot of noise. Sometimes that social media noise, it doesn't necessarily translate to votes, though. Yeah. And I think we saw that in 18 when he ran in the Senate. First, he was going to run against Wicker. Then he decided to run against Cindy Hutt Smith. And of course, Mike Espy was in that special election runoff uh, when Senator Cochran uh, retired, stepped down early. And I think Chris got 16, 17%. <clears throat> um, you know, Cindy had President Trump's endorsement. And at that point, that was really powerful. Yep. Uh, so that was a factor. Um, but you know, anybody that underestimates Chris McDaniel will learn what I learned in 14 is that's a mistake. Yeah. Don't underestimate him. And I think that uh, certainly the lieutenant governor would uh, take some some heed to what happened in, in 14. And, and just like you said, that I think he was underestimated. And 
and that's not the case. It, well, Delbert it, it, will it's not your own risk. Delbert won't make that mistake. And 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 I think we all know that Senator Cochran was up in years at that point, and Delbert is going to be a, a much more aggressive candidate, you know, than Senator Cochran. Yeah. And so I I think all of that will make for an interesting race. Um, again, I I think. If I had to put money on it, I'm, I'm going to put money on that the lieutenant governor, Delbert Hoseman, is is reelected. Um, but he's going to have to he's going to have to go to work. Yeah. And and and, and look this and and he's a workaholic anyway. Yep. And a runner. And a runner, which I which I like. But you know that. Uh you know that, that Chris is also a very hard worker on campaign trails. He's, he loves the campaign. Loves campaigning. He's he's very good at it, and he'll go to every corner of the state. He yeah, and he connects with folks. He knows how to talk to people. He knows how to kind of feed them the red meat to get them excited. Um, and so that's you know it's interesting. Right. Um, yeah, but yes, the lieutenant governor's race is going to be fascinating, and and we'll have a lot of other interesting races. You know, with the legislature. And and other, I think all the other statewide folks, you know, Lynn Fitch, you know, after the Dobbs decision and Supreme Court decision, uh, Lynn um, doesn't want to underestimate anybody and take anything for granted. But but she's in a strong political yeah. uh, position, and and I think I, and I think the rest of our Republican statewide candidates or officials. Are as well, uh, but I think you know we have a chance now to uh, pick up the uh, Brandon Presley's seat on the Public Service Commission, right. and so I think that's a good opportunity uh, for for the Republican Party. So that's we, a good point. Yep. We just got to keep picking up. We, you know, we need to pick up you know more and more the you know the local races um, as a party. We've done a lot of that. Brad White, as chairman, was great about that. He really put an emphasis on that. Uh, but we got to you know, we got to keep doing that. I know Frank Bordeaux is is not just thinking about the governor's race. He's thinking about you know from the courthouse all the way to the governor's mansion. Absolutely, and that's the right right way to go about it. Before you go, twenty twenty four right around the corner. I mean, we come off the heels of the twenty twenty three statewide elections, right into the national elections in twenty four presidential election year. Uh, of course, all the members of the House, Senator Wicker would be up for re-election as well. Let's talk about, before you go, the presidential field. What's that looking like? Nikki Haley looks like she's in. Tim Scott going to Iowa. Looks like he's probably in. Sununu thinking about it. Ron DeSantis, of course, President Trump already, former President Trump, already announced. What do you think? Well, there's a reason we're going to have a lot of Republicans look very seriously at it. The country's on going the wrong direction. And we got a president that doesn't have great approvals most folks think we got to get this guy out of there yeah and um and and i don't think vice president harris is you know what they got in mind for replacing him um so whoever wins the republican nomination for president is going to be in a really strong position uh to become the next president let's hope so and and we should pick up the majority in the senate right sets up and hopefully grow in the house so it's it's a it's a great year, hopefully, for Republicans, but we've got to get the right candidates who have an aspirational message and not a divisive, totally backward-looking message. Totally agree. I appreciate your insight, as always, Henry. That was uh, excellent, and we'll certainly be tracking all this, and I know we'll be talking more. Thanks for coming in. Yes, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Henry yes, Barber, GOP strategist, has been our guest. Coming right back on Middays, the Speaker of the House at 12.05. Thanks. 
Weekdays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. That body back, you had it 17. Well, baby, don't get down. Don't you worry about a thing. Welcome back, everyone. Middays. Super Talk Mississippi. Presley will run a tighter race than Hood did on the C Spire text line. Uh, that's possibly true. I think that Brandon Presley, just my opinion here, is a, a better retail politician. Then Jim Hood, if you haven't seen his announcement speech, I think it's eight minutes, I encourage you to do so. I, You know, Rhino, I have always been a person that pays attention to the other side. I, You know, I'm one of the crazy people that watches the Democrat debates and watches the, the Democrat rallies whether it was Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. Um, i just always been fascinated with the opponents. And, and I just have this, I guess, this uh, inquisitive mind regarding what do, they, what do they think? What makes them tick? And what resonates with their base? I think the more you understand about your competition, the better you can engineer your strategy. It doesn't matter if it's business or politics or think about how much work sports teams spend reviewing, understanding. It doesn't matter what the sport is. They're a competitor. But it doesn't seem like we do that as much in politics. We just on both sides. I'm not I'm not being critical of Republicans or Democrats uh uniquely here. I'm I'm yeah, the farther out to the extremes on the left and the right you get, the less game theory they apply to their ideology. Totally agree. I want to know. What happens so often now is we go to our respective corners, we, we kind of surround ourselves with people who think like us, and that's fine. That ends up being the so-called echo chamber, and it's just, oh, you don't agree with me? You're an idiot. That's what you get. Well, like, why not? I want to know what makes you tick. Why are you so passionate about something that I totally disagree with? In fairness, sometimes they really are just idiots. <laughs> but, and all I'm saying is, I, I spend time, I guess, reviewing and consuming information from the other side. And it, it, it fascinates me, but I feel like it, it better prepares the arguments against it. And I don't agree with Brandon Presley's philosophy of government. That doesn't mean I don't like Mr. Presley. I get along great with him, personally. But this is different. This is business. As uh, I think that's what was said in The Godfather, right? It's just business. (laughs) Nothing personal. Yeah, nothing personal. And it's not, but we just don't agree. But watching his announcement gives you a fairly good understanding of what he's going to focus on in his campaign and, and what he thinks about the role of government. And and while I agree with, with Henry that 
he is a pro-life Democrat. There are sprinkling, a smattering of those. He is. But when you get beyond that and you start getting into the role of government vis-a-vis economic issues, well, that's kind of where it stops. He, he believes in government having an outsized role in regulating our economy and redistribution, using the largesse of government uh, to transfer to others. So it's just a different situation. But I think he will be a, a formidable candidate. I, I still believe Governor Reeves wins fairly handily. And what I mean by that in this state, and really in any election these days, five to eight points in a general election, which I think is fairly close to the results in the uh, 2019 election, as I recall, in the general, at least. Hood shot himself in the foot when he got on TV and said he was going to make these corporations pay their fair share. Just parroting. That's from Thomas and Greenwood, by the way. Uh, pardon, pardon me, pardon me. That's Paula Meridian. Paula Meridian. Uh, yeah, I would tend to agree with you, Paul, but I think that's just parroting the Democrat talking points. When you, when you again, press them on exactly what do you mean by fair share, you don't get anything constructive or meaningful. That's what's frustrating, in my view. If Presley pushes the fact that Tate Reeves went against the people's choice on medical marijuana, he may pull those votes from Tate, says Paula Meridian. Thomas and Greenwood is who said, wonder if Chris will dig back in the old dirty Delbert days and bring out any skeletons when he sees he's, lo- he's losing. I think you can expect both candidates here to do some considerable, conduct some considerable opposition research and highlight that. Ah, uh, you know... I would argue the majority of it's already been done. The research itself? Yeah. Oh, no doubt about it. But you just haven't heard. They're saving it up, right? They're, oh, yeah. They're strategizing when to release that. It's I at think, the back of the file folder in the <laughs> bottom shelf. <laughs> I totally agree. Uh, we have another text here from the 662. I'll get to... After we speak with the Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, who's in the Element Well Studios after the news break. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone. Hour three of Middays. We are live from the Element Wealth Studios on this hump day. Joining us now, the Speaker of the House of Representatives of the great state of Mississippi, Philip Gunn. Mr. Speaker, good to see you, sir. Hello, Gerard. Good afternoon. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, last time you were here, you were just getting started, and you've been down there for 
Just about a month now. About a month. About a month. Yeah. In fact, right at it. I think we started January 3rd. What's That's today? Right. March 1st? I mean, uh, February, February 1st. 1st. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I wish it was March 1st. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the uh, way, it's a noon hour. Do y'all, uh, where, where's the lunch? Do I agree. Don't y'all provide lunch around We here? need to talk to Mr. Davenport about that. I'd hate to miss a meal, you know. <laughs> I'd, I'd hate to lose any weight. <laughs> well, you guys have been busy down there. We've seen some uh, some bills making their way and some burning the midnight oil, even some late committee meetings going on. Yes, sir. On. Yes, sir. Uh, I think we've talked about this before. Just as a refresher for your listeners, the legislative process operates on deadlines. Not every state does, by hmm. the way. Hmm. Some states just meet until they're tired of meeting, but uh, hmm. I think that's a bad way of doing it. But here in Mississippi, we do operate on deadlines, and so we started January 3rd, like we talked about, and the first 10 days or so is reserved to members to work on their individual bills. And there's a deadline for them to file those bills, and then we start on the what we call the committee process. And there is a, about a ten, another ten day period that the committees have to meet and consider those bills and pass them out. And there is a deadline for doing that, and that deadline was yesterday. Okay. Uh, in my personal opinion, that is the worst day of the session <laughs> because member bills begin to die. They don't come out of committee, and uh, I get phone calls all day long and, and play referee, basically, on how to get the bills out. So today, this morning, we started what we call our floor action, which means we started at 10 o'clock this morning, and we are debating bills going down the calendar one after another. And each chamber is doing that, and that period runs through next Thursday, February the 9th, at which time any bill that does not pass by then uh, dies on the calendar. Right. And then we swap bills, and we send them our bills. They send us their bills. Uh, in the middle of that, we're doing what we call appropriations and revenue bills. They have a separate deadline from a general bill. And that deadline's coming up, uh, I don't know, in a couple of weeks, maybe. And so that's how the process works. That's how it unfolds. And we will follow that, that deadline process all the way till the end of March. And we, we will do the budget and hopefully sign it die. So when we had uh, Speaker Pro Tim, Jason White, on the program, Mr. Speaker, a couple of weeks ago, he indicated that we might run out of bill numbers, that uh, it was a little surprised at the number being filed. Where do we stand? How many are going to now go I to the floor? I didn't look to see what the last number was. Uh, we did have a record number of bill requests. Now, just as in the way of, again, process, the members are the only ones who can sponsor bills. So if you have an idea out there, you have to convince your legislator to that it's a good idea and be willing to put his or her name on that bill to, to file it. Uh, generally, we reserved uh, bill, bill numbers 1 through 1999 for the House and bill numbers 2000 through 3999 for the Senate. Uh, we had 1,947 requests in the House this year, <laughs> so we almost got to that 1999 number. And that is before we had appropriation requests, bond bills, and uh, right. local and private. So there is a potential that uh, if we run out of, you know, 1999, if we get to 1999, then we would have to jump all the way to 4,000 <laughs> to uh, to reach the bill numbers because those other numbers are reserved for the Senate. I don't know if that's ever happened in the history of the legislature, but I uh, don't think we're quite there yet. Okay. I hope all we right. don't get there. Yeah, I do too, honestly. I, I, I start wondering about 
how effective and productive uh, the members can be when you're deliberating that many pieces of legislation. It's it just it's not effective, and I think it pulls away from the quality of work that the attorneys can do on the bills that that that's really matter. Yeah. You know, when they when they have to stop and draft a bill that's 400 pages long, it's really going nowhere. Uh, it it pulls them away from working on bills that really could make a difference. Um, I I have encouraged my members to. You pick your two or three best ideas and go with it. Yeah. Don't file 30 bills. I did that as a freshman. I came in, I had come out of a very contentious election, and I thought, I'm going to fix the entire election code. <laughs> and I filed 31 bills. Well, if you understand the legislative process, you know you can't follow 31 bills through yeah. the entire process. So I always encourage my members, pick your two or three best ideas and try to get them passed. We're only in there for three months. Yeah. And as I said in the beginning, we work on deadlines. So you don't have time to follow 31 bills. Don't file 31 bills. Good point. But that doesn't resonate, and some of them still file 31 <laughs> bills. So there you go. Well, they got lots we'd of run folk, out of numbers. Lots of folks in their ears, as you know. Yes, that's true. Um, all right. So last time you were here, the elimination of the state income tax, still your top priority. What's that look like from any legislation perspective? Well, we're having conversations as we speak. I continue to, to champion that. I think that is a very uh, one of the most impactful things that we could do to uh, enhance the, the quality of life of our citizens is let them keep more of their hard-earned money. Uh, Chairman Trey Lamar and I have been in conversations about that. We do plan. There's a separate deadline for right. that. That's a revenue bill, right. so the deadline is a couple of weeks off. So we will be filing a bill to address some of that. I know you've been a big proponent of that, big champion for that as well, and I appreciate that support. So we do plan to look at a proposal to make that happen. Okay. Uh, what did you think about the governor's State of the State address? Any particular thoughts on that? Uh, much of what he talked about were things that we had either already done or in the process of doing. Uh, I think he hit on many of the things that, that we agree with, the elimination of the income tax. Um, I was trying to think of some of the other things he touched on. That, well, he, uh, talk, he talked about the certificate of need loss. We did talk about that. Uh, I, am, I am one who believes that is standing in the way of uh, more competitive health care. Right. I may be. I, I know I'm on the opposite side of the fence with the health care providers, but uh, it seems to me the only people who want that are those who are in the health care field. Yeah. And it seems to me that it, it runs contrary to the free market. It runs contrary to uh, competition. And uh, I have not really understood why that exists. I've, un- I've had explanations given to me, which I don't necessarily subscribe to. So stick with need is something that I think needs to be looked at um, and and my view is it needs to go away. Yeah, that's something I've been crusading on for seems like twenty something years, and we just don't seem to be able to get it over the hump. You're right, and I think uh, the the lobby is strong on that. But it is. It, it is it, just think about it. We don't we don't give uh, a monopoly, if you want to call it that, to any other industry out there except schools. The healthcare system and maybe the electric power companies in the rural areas, which are but, regulated. But, but two of the areas that we seem to have the most trouble with and seem to be most dysfunctional are 
the education system and the health care system. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's where we hear most of the complaints coming from. So I think free market competition uh, is is good. I'd like to see the CON laws evaporate. I think the model for health care has got to be changed in the rural areas. There's just not a population base to support full-blown hospital care. I've actually had conversations with uh, people in the rural area who agree with that and acknowledge that. So there's there's a lot of issues to be looked at in the healthcare world that have got to be addressed. Yeah, no doubt about that. Well, that was that was uh, something I was a little surprised to see uh, made part of the governor's state of the state remarks. I don't know that I can remember him being so definitive about that issue I, in the I past. Don't, I don't know that I can remember either. Well, maybe that will uh, change the the fortunes of uh, Mm -hmm. that cause. Um, He he talked a lot, of course, about education, and he also made it clear that he – I can't remember if it was in the speech or afterwards, but he's made it clear, and I think you share his view about expansion of uh, Medicaid to include the period postpartum beyond the 60 days that's included in base Medicaid that would extend it to 12 months. Uh, how do you feel about that at this point? Steve? Well, I, I've been very clear every time I've asked is that I'm just not for Medicaid expansion. I don't. Um, I don't think our state can support that financially. I don't think our citizens uh, clamor for that. I just don't think it's a good practice or a good policy to expand Medicaid, and we have opposed that. And I think the governor's in line with that as well. Yeah. We've got. Can you hang around? Yes, sir. We got Speaker of the House Philip Gunn in the Element Well Studios. We're coming right back after this break. Keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. It's middays, Super Talk Mississippi. We're in the Element Well Studios with Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn. All right, Mr. Speaker, I shared with you last time you were here that I felt like uh, we, we kind of started our discussion summarizing the accomplishments uh, from the last session, the 2022 session. And I shared with you I thought the, the citizen ballot initiative process was an unfinished matter. They just didn't go anywhere last year. So in the state of Mississippi, at this point at least, the citizens have no vehicle to place a measure on the ballot for a statewide vote. If under present law that would amend the Constitution, I think most would argue, and the bill we had out of the House last year, Representative Shanks' committee, would uh, instead 
allow the citizens to amend or, or I guess, create statute law mm-hmm. and instead of amending the Constitution. I just got wind of a bill that came out of the Senate mm-hmm. that doesn't look at all like it would really <laughs> confer any power <laughs> to the people. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this. I don't know that our audience is. But this essentially would be a suggestion, if you will, to legislators. It goes to the ballot. People vote on it. It goes to the legislature. And they sort of can act on it however they want. And in fact, with a two-thirds vote, by the legislature, they could amend what went to, and then pass a bill. But they're not compelled to enact anything that would pass through the citizen uh, initiative process. This isn't really what the people want, I don't think, Mr. Speaker. Well, you're you're ahead of me on that, because I have not seen that yet. Okay. I, I got a text late last night saying the Senate had passed something, and I have not had a chance to look at it. I've uh, been focused on the bills on my end of the building, I trying s- to make sure that they're getting out and that uh, we were ready for today. But in the way of, of just history here for the understanding of the listener, they will recall that the medical marijuana ballot initiative passed. Our Supreme Court declared that process to, that by which it passed to be invalid. So we don't have an initiative process now. Last year, we attempted to find an agreement uh, on that. This House and Senate, uh, you know, as, as, as you rightly mentioned, it was probably a historic session because we did so many major policy items like the the income tax and the teacher pay and the crisis pregnancy centers and on and on and on. Medical but marijuana. Medical marijuana, the ARPA funds, uh, you know, on and on it goes. But this is one that did not get done. We in the, in the House passed a bill last year that was very close to the original process. We, we fixed the, the problem that the Supreme Court said existed, which was uh, conforming our number of congressional districts to the, the previous one said five congressional districts. Well, we don't have five anymore. We got four. So that was one of the problems. We changed it to just say, ever how many we got, that's how many is going to be required. And then we uh, changed it. As far as it, signatures. Just as far as the yeah. signatures yep. that you have to achieve and, mm-hmm. uh, and obtain. And then we said whatever is put on the ballot goes into the statutes, not into the Constitution. And as an attorney, I think that's the right thing to do. I think most people would agree with that. Yep. And, then, and here again, you do that because not everything works out the way you think it is. You pass a bill today and you think you've addressed all the concerns, but something comes up or something needs to be tweaked. You've got to have that flexibility to improve legislation after it's it's been passed. So that's basically the only two changes we made. Now, we sent it to Senate, I think, uh, I don't remember if they passed their own bill or if they took ours and amended it, but in any way, their position was a much higher threshold than ours. And in the midst of everything last year, we were never able to uh, come to an agreement on what that number should be. So um, we viewed it, you know, it, it's kind of in their court. It's kind of for them to decide what they want to do. We've made our position clear. It's, they're the ones that want to do something significantly different. So when I left the Capitol yesterday, they had not passed anything, and it was not a little late last night. Late yesterday I, came I out of committee. a text that uh, – that they had passed something, and I haven't had a chance to review it. Well, the good news is 
We got something out of committee. There's a vehicle. Yeah. There's a vehicle it's, and an opportunity to discuss, right. right. It did incorporate the 12% of all registered voters' requirement, okay. as opposed to the House's version, which is 12% of those who cast a, a vote in the prior uh, governor's election. Okay. So it's still around 240,000 versus 106,000, right. more than double. So that's that's embedded in there. But I, I think the, the the most shocking aspect of it to me was that it it really doesn't hold any weight. It's just if you want guys want to put this together and vote on it and send it to us, we'll we'll take it under advisement, right. so to speak, as opposed to oh yeah, this people spoke. We're going to have to enact that into law. I got you. And and that's that's my understanding of it at this point. But I talked to a couple of senators when I was up at the Capitol late last night on another matter, and they said, "Well, we got something out of committee." And that's okay. all I got. So very good. Now we have some details. We'll look at it when we'll it comes across. Yep, we'll see where that goes. Uh, that that's certainly one thing. We had Representative Nick Bain on the program last week, talking about the Capitol Complex Improvement District and the, a bill that would extend that all the way up here, just outside our door to County Line Road, mm-hmm. uh, from just south of the Capitol and the Capitol Complex, all the way north in the city of Jackson, uh, where the Capitol Police would be responsible for uh, patrolling and protecting that area. And also, we would establish a completely new judicial district, as I understand it, as part of that. He indicated that uh, the mayor and the city leaders were on board with that in particular, the mayor, but the mayor's come back and said, no, we're not for this. I saw there was a little protest outside the Capitol yesterday afternoon. I wasn't sure if you were aware of that, aware of that, but when I was entering, that was just breaking up. Okay. okay. So, And it's people in Jackson that don't want this to happen. What do you think here? Well, I'm all for it. I think we need to create a, a capital city improvement district. I've been in the, one of the ones that's been pushing for that. I think we need an enhanced police force within that area. That helps the city. I mean, we see all the time a struggle against crime in the city. I don't know why they would be against additional police officers. And the state is willing to step up and help in that area. And when you provide more resources to that area, well, that frees the city up to use their police officers in other areas of the city. I see no downside to increasing the police presence in the city of Jackson or in the capital city improvement district previously capitol police were only in state office buildings they sat at the door of the capitol and the door of the wolf oak building and the sellers building and they just patrolled capital state properties yeah but this lets them get out into the city and patrol in the city that's not a bad thing then the creation of the court system i think is what they probably are most upset about and again there's a tremendous backlog in this in the uh, my understanding anyway there's a po- tremendous backlog with the criminal justice system in Hines County and and in other areas and this, we don't this, have a jail by the way don't have a jail so what this would do and and again I'm, I've got to go back and make sure I'm right on this so don't hold me to it but all we're talking about is creating a prosecutor and a judge to take on more of the criminal uh, cases that occur and when you know when you, when the criminals know there's an enhanced police force and a judicial system that's going to prosecute you and a jail and a jail it <laughs> discourages it discourages yeah. crime and yeah. they go elsewhere and it frees up the resources with our current court system 
to handle the other matters, the, 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 the civil cases, the car wrecks, the chancery matters. It takes that criminal burden off of them so that they are more efficient and can do and provide better service. So I don't see a downside on any front to this, this proposal. Well, let's be honest. This, this, the catalyst for this was what you have to admit is the failure of leadership in the city of Jackson. I agree. I mean, and this I wouldn't agree. be a problem. This would not be a problem if we didn't have rampant crime. If 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 we didn't have folks, I think many you've heard them as well, Mr. Speaker. I don't want to go to Jackson. I'm worried about going down and to that's Jackson. A sad. That's a sad state of affairs, because this is our capital city, and we don't need to have that reputation. Yes. People need to feel safe, and and I have had people begging for us to expand this capital city improvement district. People who are on the edge, like you or the South Downtown. Previously, it was just state properties, which encompassed some of downtown, went all the way up to the Med Center, and then from Jackson State over to I-55. I agree. This expands it to come all the way up to County Line, takes in all of, of the downtown, and just is a, is a more safe area. And people got to have that comfort if they're going to come down totally and agree. Buy, go to restaurants on a Friday night or stay in our hotels or do whatever. Would It would help the economy of the city yeah, as absolutely well. Absolutely would help the economy. Yeah. You got to get back. I want to talk to you about the the gender reassignment uh, bill. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. I, I I've got a, a one o'clock meeting, but okay. I can uh, we'll I can stay that. with you. Okay, I'll stay with we've you. got Speaker of the House Philip Gunn in the Element Well Studios. We're coming right back. Super Talk Mississippi. Element Well Studios on this hump day. It's Speaker of the House. Philip Gunn is our guest. We appreciate you staying around with us. Um, uh, Absolutely. I know you got to get back, but I wanted to touch on something that uh, you have been very passionate about. I have as well, and that is uh, legislation that would essentially prohibit uh, gender reassignment surgery being performed on minors. Yes, sir. In Absolutely. The, in the and state I'm of Mississippi. Very, uh, as far as things that we have done thus far in the session, I would have to point to that as the most transformative, impactful piece of legislation that we have done in the first month. And it was something that was so critically important, we took it up early yeah. in the session. We see around the country where those who would push the transgender agenda um, and and most of these health providers are there's significant dollars tied up into that 
for them. Yep. Um, we have seen in places around the country where these things are being given to minors. And uh, the, the transition drugs, the transition surgeries, and I'm not intimately familiar with all all is involved with that. But doing it, uh, doing that sort of stuff to a minor is just not right. It and and so we and the legislature in the House, I should say, uh, passed a bill to to stop that here in Mississippi. We uh, looked at the fact that in society we have made decisions about a number of things. We have decided that children are not able to decide you cannot vote until you're 18 you cannot get married you can't enter into contract you can't get a tattoo you can't smoke or drink or at least buy it um you, you know and and we've decided that the, they're not mature enough to make those kinds of decisions and even if you walked in and said hey i my 12 year old is uh mature and he pays attention to politics i think he ought to vote we're still not going to let that 12 year old vote so those things many of those things don't have permanent lifelong consequences if we're not going to let children make decisions about those things we certainly shouldn't let them make decisions as permanent as changing their their sex until they're of age of majority which and, is, which and is 18. even in situations and th- this is normally the objection that i've heard and i and i get you to uh, comment on this react to this is that uh well we as republicans don't interfere with the raising of a child we stay out of family matters in that respect but to me, this looks like, no, in fact, we're trying to protect an innocent child from ab- abusive parents. Well, you're absolutely right. This is, this, is protect, this is a child protection bill. And what you just said, is, like I said, is just not absolutely true in those other areas. Society, including Republicans, have determined you can't vote till you're 18. You yeah. can't buy alcohol or cigarettes. You can't get married. Sure. We have decided as a society, that ain't Republican or Democrat, That's right. as a society, we recognize children, individuals, are not capable of making certain decisions until they get of age. And yeah. this, is, this entire bill is a child protection bill because so many times we have seen that, that children who at one stage in their life feel this way, 10 years, 20 years from now, realize that as they mature and get older and get more information, uh, they realize it was just a phase they were going through, and and that we should give them the time to work through that. We had an individual at the press conference last week who uh, was, a, was a young lady who went through this, and she gave personal testimony as to the struggles that she went through and how grateful she was that she didn't have the financial ability to follow through with all this. And you can hear stories like that, you know, all across the Count, country, countless, all over countless. the place. Yeah, and so uh, we're just saying we're going to protect our children children from this until such time as they have the ability to make their own decisions. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad to see that uh, I think we got bills that made it out on both houses, I believe, regarding this, if I'm not mistaken. I don't recall that there's a Senate bill. Okay. We passed okay. it maybe, out of the House, right. and, uh, and it has now gone to the Senate. Okay. And, of course, going back to our original conversation, it is not yet time for them to take up many of the bills. They're working on their bills as we are working on ours. Okay. All right, I stand corrected. But on I that. do hope that they will take it up and that they will pass it and and pass it soon. Yeah, I I feel like it has a pretty good chance. I I, I can't imagine that it would. And I know you and I talked about this one on one offline uh, last week. How did we get here? How, why are we even? What it's crazy why to are me we even that having this we're discussion. having this discussion. That's this, right. This just seems so painfully obvious. 
it, it and it, it in some quarters is a political agenda by yeah. by many. It is a cultural push that is that is taking place that is affecting forever the lives of some young people. And yeah. we're trying to guard against that. Yeah, it absolutely uh, makes no sense. There's something else that uh, uh, the governor talked about that's related to this, Mr. Speaker, in his state of the state, was uh, a bill that would essentially codify uh, parental rights. Right. Your thoughts about that? I'm all for it. Sponsored a bill with my name on it to do that. Okay. Um, we ended up yesterday receiving uh, quite a, a bit of concern over some things that were in that bill from the education community. Um, it was decided we would um, revisit some of those things, and so we're going to continue to to put the bill itself did not come out of committee, but I'm still looking at ways to make sure that we make a statement that the parents have the right to raise their children and make health care decisions and educational decisions. They have a right to know what their children are being taught at school. They have the right to come up there and see what the curriculum is and not have things slipped in without their knowledge. So it is a, it's a bill designed to preserve and uphold parental rights. And we're going to continue to work on that and try to make sure we get something like that passed this session. It's that's another one of those, Mr. Speaker. That's it's a bit stunning that we have to do that, honestly. And I, and I would argue that for for decades, it seems like we heard from the education community that if we just had more parental involvement in the children's education, <laughs> you remember that that's we would right. have better education. Now right. we're trying to get the parents more involved, and you're saying no. Once they get here, they we own them. Well, I think you see this around the country, and and uh, maybe even here in Mississippi. But I know all of us have seen on the news around the country where school boards and the education community says, hey, leave it to us. We know what's best and stay out of our way. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not saying that happens here in Mississippi. Yeah. I'm saying we've seen it in other parts of the country, particularly Virginia, where I think they said that they were terrorist, parents were terrorists or something like that. That's the kind of stuff we don't need here in Mississippi. Just One of the strengths we have in our state, I believe, is parental involvement and stable families. And we want to enhance that and give opportunities for that to flourish. And that's what this bill is designed to do. It is not designed to put burdens on the school system or attack the school system, but it is designed to preserve the right of parents to make educational decisions for their kids, what they're being taught, know what they're being taught, um, and that's what we're trying to preserve. And, and doesn't it isn't it grounded just in the concept that the parents are the people that are that are paying for um, all these the resources? Taxpayers are the ones that are paying for that. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, the salaries, the assets, and everything else involved in delivering an education is because of the monies. That are sent that from come, the taxpayers. Come to from government. the taxpayers. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly right. Oh gosh, that's right, and that's what we're trying to to preserve. We believe that the parents have the right to raise, have a fundamental right, yep. to raise their children. Yeah, and uh, there's a balance there between the, the 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 transgender bill. But like we said, we as a society have decided there are certain things that a child is not capable of doing, and we take that from the parents: the right to vote, the right to buy alcohol and cigarettes and whatnot. But Aside from those things that 
that we have laws on, parents have a right to raise their kids and well, teach sure. them and educate them in whatever manner they think is best. Sure. Homeschool them, private school them, send them to the public school. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the gender reassignment thing to me sort of rises to the level of would we allow a parent to say dismember a child, you know, just chop their arm off because they had a whim one day. That's right. kind of what this is about. That's, that, that's a great distinction between what you're talking about you're right we don't we're not going to let parents make that decision and in some parts of the country we've seen that take place yeah and this is why the transgender bill stands in the gap and protects children against those it lets the child make the decision for themselves when they become of age yeah totally agree all right what else is on on your list of things you're tracking and you're advocating for well you know uh, we're we're bringing a big push to bring forward a number of bills that are going to we hope uh as a result of the, the the overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision, uh, we're we're making a big focus on making adoption cleaner, easier, less costly. We're looking at the foster care system. We're looking at enhancing the tax credit that you and I have talked about to let private industry support our crisis pregnancy centers. Yeah. We're going to be come for, coming forward with the next in the next week with a number of bills that are focused on helping our mothers and families raise their children, and that's a big focus of this session for us in the House. Looking forward to it, Mr. Speaker. Thanks for coming in, and thanks for staying on. Absolutely. With well. Always a pleasure to be with you. Yes, thanks, sir. Thanks, Gerard. Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn has been our guest on Middays. We're coming right back with a final segment. Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, what day is Mardi Gras this year? Fat Tuesday. I want to say it's less than three weeks away. It ain't far. I know that. I know it's this month. That's why I pulled out the Zydeco. <laughs> February 21st. You're right. Three weeks. Have you heard reports that uh, the city of New Orleans was considering canceling Mardi Gras because they don't have sufficient resources uh, for police protection, etc.? Yeah, and it's kind of like the boy that cried wolf, because I think this is about the fifth or sixth time in the last decade, decade and a half, they've floated the idea to try to get some leverage on funding or resources. <laughs> yeah, that's just the way that stuff works. It, it it gets just long in the tooth after a while, doesn't it? It would take an extraordinary set of circumstances for the city of New Orleans to cancel their cash cow. <laughs> That's exactly right. It is sad, though. The The Crescent City has certainly deteriorated significantly, like so many other Democrat-run metropolitan areas. And I have such fond memories of the city. My family originally from New Orleans, spent a lot of time down there 
as a youngster, visiting relatives, and can't count the number of times my entire family attended Mardi Gras, would actually take off from school when I was in grade school, uh, get, get an excuse from my parents uh, to the school administration to do so, and it would be our whole family. And my mother would spend months making costumes back when it was customary for families to dress up in the same costume. And my mother was quite the seamstress, and she'd make costumes, measure everybody, make them. And there'd be 20 of us all. It was just cool. It was fun. It was more of a family atmosphere. I mean, there's still a family atmosphere, especially in some parts of town yeah. with some parades. And pretty much any parade that's done during the daytime, you're going to have a whole big chunk of families with their kids with the little ladders set yeah. up so they can get closer. And Yeah. I think mainly St. Charles down uptown oh, yeah. is where you're likely to see that when they get to some parts of the canal. Like what is the the parade of tucks? Is that the the friar that hands out toilet related humor? <laughs> yeah. That's, That's always right. a family friendly it's affair. It's always funny. And you know the ones leading up to Fat Tuesday. Uh Endymion, for example. Oh yeah, the big ones on the weekend before Fat Tuesday really are cool. always just insane. Um and their costumes and floats, unbelievable. A lot of fun. Well, I hope it doesn't come to that. I tend to agree with you. It's just crying wolf. Speaking of which, you know the president was in New York yesterday. Uh he didn't really visit any of the migrant shelters. He didn't want to see all that. It's like if I don't look at it. He and the vice president, the czar of immigration, the czar of the border. Well, I guess it doesn't exist since I don't really see it, because they keep them in the dark about it. It's kind of disgusting, honestly. If there's any member, if there's any individual, I should say, in the federal government that whose performance rises to the level of impeachment, it's Mayorkas with Homeland Security who continues to tell the world that the border is totally secure. And that's, like, easily refuted with one's eyes. You just have to open your eyes and look at it. Uh, that guy needs to go. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not for rabbit holes chasing by the Republicans in the House, but this is one I think they honestly should immediately call for, whose impeachment they should call for, uh, because I think there's valid reason for it. He, he would, seems to me like it would be e relatively easy to prove that uh, he's abdicated his responsibility and therefore should be removed from office, which is what that impeachment would do. On the ceasefire text line, sorry, we had great guests today. Appreciate everybody coming in and and uh, normally it's a segment or two and had two guests that stayed for three. Really appreciate that. And I, I hope folks enjoyed that. I thought the conversation and the insight from Henry Barber and Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, very timely and uh, very informative. So, but so as consequently, we got lots of texts we didn't get to today. Going to try to get just to a couple and we'll get back on it tomorrow. There was one, please have the speaker clarify the Capitol Police would be the only law enforcement in their designated area. That is my understanding of the way this bill would work. That's why the you, you, it wouldn't be practical to have an overlap there. And that's why, by the way, 
the uh, the mayor has come out and said, "No, I don't. I'm not on board with this." And our our uh, excerpt from our interview with Nick Bain actually made it to the local news media in their uh, in their video and news presentations. And right behind that is the mayor saying, no, I didn't agree to that. Well, then do your damn job, and we wouldn't have to worry about it. It's pretty simple. It's hard to take him seriously when he likens it to apartheid. Yeah, it's exactly what he did. John Pontiac says, Morgan Wallen wears blue Delta jeans made in Verona, Mississippi. That's really cool. We're back in the Yellow Well studios tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.